0: I'd like to begin by taking a little trip down memory lane. I would like you to think about your childhood, and I would like you to think of some things children say. And with that, I would also like us, after a little reflection, to name some of those things that are most often said by children. So does anybody want to watch that? Can I have a snack? Oh, that sounds like I can understand that. Okay, can I have a snack? Anybody else, anything? I didn't do it. it. Okay, wow. (laughs) That's great. Thanks, Sue. Anybody else? Are we there yet? Absolutely. Anything else? It's not fair. Thank you, because that's kind of where we're going. Is there anybody? anything else? No. No? I was going to say, anybody else? Why not? not? Thank you. Thank you, Harvey. Yeah, those are all things. And does anybody ever hear, I love you? And doesn't that just kind of melt your heart when your kids say that to you? I love you. Those are all things that kids say. But as I wanted to kind of point out, in my household, I think my sisters and I, just because they were sisters, we were often saying to our parents, it's not fair, And we said it in times of of just normal life, right? I remember saying to my mom one time, it's not fair that I have to help with dishes because we didn't have a dishwasher when I set the table tonight. And I said to my mom things like, it's not fair that I have to do my homework before my TV show comes on because if I do it, I'll miss it. And you know what? There was no streaming service to watch it later. And I also remember saying, because I was the youngest, and Alex, I don't know if you ever said this to your folks, it's not fair, I can't do what Barb and Marge do. And my mom would say, you know, kind of tough. Kind of tough luck, Pat, you are the youngest, you can't do everything your older sisters do. Well, it's not fair. Well, that is um, something I think we have this innate... Um, innate sense of fairness with which we are born. And this is, a, I think, a powerful thing and a wonderful thing because that sense of fairness when developed into maturity is kind of the foundation of justice and equality, right? It's not fair that someone can't vote and I can. So that might lead us to do something about that, right? It's not fair that someone has to sit in the back of the bus and we get to sit up front. And that might change something that we're working towards. It's not fair that some go to bed hungry and while others fill landfills with their excess. So we work towards having um, food, uh, food for all people. Our sense of, of fairness can lead to strong and life-giving sense of justice and then working towards that. But it doesn't always because our innate sense of fairness tends to be, as one biblical scholar suggests, very egocentric. It's all about us. And those examples from childhood demonstrate that. In terms of what seems fair, this not only to us, but for us. Often that's what motivates kids' sense of fairness. It's measured by their wants and needs with little regard for the wants and needs of others. And unfortunately, that doesn't end with childhood. I'm going to get a Kleenex here because I feel like I need that. (laughs) Um, I want to share two stories from college. And the first story um, is this. It was spring semester of my sophomore year. And I had taken a pretty heavy course load. In fact, I had as many hours as you could take in a, a semester. And that finals week was particularly busy for me, not only because I had tests to do, but I had some final papers to complete. And as you might imagine, it was a hectic week and I stayed up to wee hours of the morning completing things or studying for things. And one of the things I had to complete was a psych paper. Well, on my way over to drop that paper off at the professor's office, Remember, for me, there was no emailing it in. You had to literally walk to the office and drop it off or drive or whatever. I ran into Mary Kelch, who was often in the same psych classes I was in and um, who I also knew to have a very busy semester. And I said something to her like, oh, did you just drop your paper off at Dr. Moraldo's office? And she said, no, she hadn't. That um, she had talked with her about receiving an extension because she had been she had felt so overwhelmed by her workload, and then she went on to say, "Dr. Morado, who was known to be a very demanding professor, expected everything to be done on time, had granted her the extension," and I said, "Oh." <laughs> But inside, I was rather livid because I had also had this tough workload, this course load, that finals week. And I, nonetheless, had done the right thing. I stayed up to the wee hours of the morning to finish my paper. I was mad that Dr. Moraldo had been kind and understanding to Mary's situation and had graciously granted her the extension. The second story. I was a biology major in college and because of that I had to take 20 hours of chemistry to complete my requirements for my major. And this meant I had to take a year of organic chemistry my sophomore year. The course was quite challenging for me, not for all people, but for me was quite challenging. And in this year-long course there were three exceptionally bright chemistry majors. And they always did much better on the exams than the rest of the class, so much so we were, they were always here and we were always there. Well, this was, as I said, so much so that Dr. Reeves, our professor, did not use their uh, scores to develop his grading curve for the class. I passed organic chemistry with a strong, solid C. Yes. <laughs> But this was because of that class grading curve. It was not If it was not for that curve, many of us probably would have failed. As you might imagine, I was grateful for the curve because it allowed me to complete the requirements for my biology. But not until reading this week's gospel did I ever consider that those top three students might have felt maybe not very happy about that. Perhaps they thought that wasn't fair. Perhaps they thought we were all slackers who needed to retake the course so we could complete it really and master the the material. I'm not really sure, but I'm pretty sure the rest of the class never questioned if the grading curve was fair. We just gladly accepted Dr. Reeves' generous curve and rejoiced that we were all able to pass the class. Which brings us to the gospel lesson for today about these day laborers. Right up front, biblical scholars would tell us it's important to recognize just how tough it was to be a day laborer. These are folks who had no regular employment and so they must stand in this town square and hope that some landowner who needs extra workers for a day will hire them for the day. And there's no... Um, Social services, there's no unemployment. This was their life. So if you were both healthy and lucky, you would work for a day and then receive your day's wages. But if you were unlucky and maybe not as healthy and didn't really look like you could do the work, you'd be Passover and possibly wait all day, maybe to get some work, only to return empty-handed to your home where maybe those who um, depended upon you looked rather disappointed that things were not going to be good for them. Well, here's the good news of the gospel lesson. And this day that we read about, everyone gets to work, and that's a good thing. You know, you think about that. Everybody had work that day. And some are chosen early, some later, some a little bit later, and some just an hour before quitting time. So there is no doubt in my mind that those who were hired last were really pleasantly surprised of their good fortune that they received a full day's wage for an hour of work. And now you have to keep in mind once again, as the gospel tells us, it wasn't like they were um, just being kind of idle and ooh. It's not like they weren't trying, but nobody hired them until they were hired. They were eager, they were willing, but they were passed over time and time again. And I suspect when they were finally paid for their work, they were delighted to discover that they would have enough money to go home and care for their families. Well, this act of generosity causes the others to have expectations about what they will receive Those who had worked all day, they start to do the mental calculations, adding up and anticipating how much more money they'll receive than they originally thought they would. And it's hard not to blame them, isn't it? It's hard not to blame them. We would do the same thing. If those who worked just an hour got a full day's wage, well, if you worked 12 hours, maybe I'd get more. Maybe I would get a lot more. Maybe, just maybe, I'd get 12 times more. And think about that. They could feed their family for about a half a month. That'd be wonderful. But that's not what happens. They receive a full day's wage, nothing more, nothing less. They receive, though, what they are promised. And they're disappointed. They're angry. It just doesn't seem to be fair. But the landowner reminds that, and in fact, it is totally fair. They are paid what they're promised. And if anything, the landowner is not only fair but downright generous because they did provide for those who came later in the day, and they're and they're perfectly fair. He's, the landowner is perfectly fair to those who were called early to work the day. So why then the begrudging? Why then the begrudging of such generosity? Because it's human nature, right? It's like this is what we sometimes do as human beings. We do this because we're insecure. Sometimes we lack trust. Sometimes we just forget that our lives are good and God has um, provided for us abundantly. And we, but when sometimes when we forget that, we feel like we lack something. And because of that, we define ourselves over and against others, comparing and begrudging their good fortune because it wasn't our good fortune. And I'm sad to say, I know I have done this at times in my life. As the story of turning in that psych paper in College Illustrates, I just wasn't happy that somebody had been so gracious to Mary. And when I think about it, maybe I was just, I was also kind of mad at myself that I never thought to ask somebody for help. I never thought to say to my professor, I think I overdid it with my course load this year or this semester. Well, a biblical scholar suggests that as we read this parable, maybe we would read it differently if we situated ourselves at the end of the line, at the place where the worker came aboard an hour uh, before the ending time. And those workers got more than what was expected. They received more pay than they thought they deserved. And I'm pretty sure they were ecstatic about that. What they experienced that day was just pure blessing. And I'll bet that when Uh, At the end of the line, I bet there was this kind of raucous, quiet party going on because they were just so grateful that they would be be able to return home and feed their families to care for those they loved. And I think I know how that feels because I was grateful for that curve in my organic chemistry class. But all that other stuff, the envy, the, uh, the envy, the bitterness, the grumbling, the dissatisfaction, that belongs to seems to the folks at the front of the line. The landowner had honored the agreement. They had received what they were promised. They had enough for their daily bread. They didn't lack anything, but they seemed to spend their hours consumed with frustration and anger. And so here's the thing. If God's generosity offends, it's because that person doesn't have eyes to see where they actually stand in the line of God's overflowing grace, kindness, and steadfast love. And here is the truth. At one time or another, we have all stood in different places in that line. And here's the truth. We have all probably stood at the end of the line, being the last person to be hired, dependent on God's grace and kindness and generosity in our lives. Martin Luther wrote, in the presence of God's mercy, we are all beggars. We bring nothing. We are all beggars. And this is what this parable and even the story of Jonah seeks to remind all of God's beloved. That our lives of faith begin and continue because of God's steadfast love and nothing else. They begin and continue because of God's mercy. They begin and continue because of God's generosity and God's forgiveness. They begin and they continue because of God's amazing grace. Today, this parable calls us to extend that amazing grace to others as the followers of Jesus. We extend it to others no matter what, no matter where they find themselves standing in that line. Amen.